This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Welcome back to the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Laura Suter. And on today's episode, we're going to be chatting about a prominent fund manager making a return, how you can get a bumper rate on your savings. I'm joined today by Leith Keller. Hi, Laura. Yeah, also today, uh, Laura and I have been crunching some numbers on on the uh, the exact impact of all the raft of tax changes um, that have been announced in the last couple of years. And Tom Selby is going to be joining us for a lifetime ISA special later in the pod. Him and Laura are going to answer all your questions ahead of the new tax year. And Dan is also going to be making an appearance this week with an interview about how the current energy price crisis has impacted the energy industry. But first, let's start as we always do with markets. Leith, has anything exciting been happening? Well, I mean, it's been a pretty a pretty positive week overall uh, for the markets. I think um, largely driven by, you know, hopes of, of peace breaking out in in Ukraine. Um, we're recording this on on Wednesday morning, so as things stand at the moment, there've been some peace talks. There've been some, um, you know, encouraging noises made by um, by Russian officials, um, but um, many leaders in the West and indeed Ukraine actually. Um, saying, um, you know, let's hold our horses and wait to see if they back those up with actions. Um, so as far as the markets are concerned, I think we generally see a continuation of of kind of last week's um, uh, rally. So um, again, market markets up, um, um, S&P 500 up around 3% in the in the last uh, uh, week or so. Now that S&P 500 is actually up 10% in the last two weeks. Um, so it's pretty much almost erased all of the losses that it's it's racked up since since the since the beginning of the year, and and I think that's that's pretty impressive. Bearing in mind that it wasn't just the Ukraine crisis that was a problem for the S and P five hundred, we also had that kind of tech growth sell off at the beginning of the year as well. So fairly hefty rebound uh, in the U S market uh, from where they were, and and the FTSE one hundred also up around five percent in the last two weeks, but. Um, yeah, as I, as I say, obviously, the kind of, I guess, you know, sentiment is, of course, being driven by what's happening in Ukraine. And that's clearly a very uh, a volatile situation. Um, so so one one to keep an eye on. Maybe, maybe something a little bit more technical, um, which I'm going to try and explain, uh, is um, uh, is uh, something that's been going on in, in, in the bond market. Um, uh, and that is u't uh, what's called a yield curve inversion. Oh, wow. Um, okay. painful, this sounds it? really technical. Yeah, it does. Okay, I'm going to try and break it down, make it slightly more interesting. So <laughs> this is basically when the yield on short term bonds is yielding the same as or more than long term bonds. And you might say that doesn't sound very interesting and probably in and of itself, it's not that interesting. But this is quite a um, a decent indicator of expectations of economic growth. And it's very much linked to expectations of a recession, because essentially what, what it's saying is we think that, you know, there's probably going to be interest rate rises in the short term. The economy is going to be doing OK. But then in the longer term, actually, we don't think much is going to be going on beyond the kind of, you know, shorter term horizon. Um, so it basically suggests that the bond market is saying, yeah, OK, we're OK for now. There's going to be some interest rate rises. The global economy is recovering from COVID for the next kind of six to 12 months or so. But, you know, after that, we're not really convinced that things are going to be that great. Um, so a little bit of a, a warning um, signal there from from the bond market, um, which, 
you know, I mean, you you could, I guess, make the case that we're in a we're in a sort of strange situation in that we know that there are interest rate rises coming down the, the line. But central banks have kind of flagged those for this year, so that's perhaps why the kind of yield on on the shorter dated bonds is is, is rising. But you would normally expect that to have an effect on longer dated bonds um, as well, um, except. Like I say, they don't seem to be moving up quite as fast, and that suggests that you know the market you know doesn't really buy into like this huge kind of you know economic growth story, and also isn't really buying into um, you know long term inflation story. Um, and actually, yeah, sorry, Laurie, you were about to say something. No, I was just going to say that that you started with some positive news, and then we had some slightly more negative news. So you've balanced yeah, it out. Yeah, so you know it's a balanced picture, isn't it? So you know this is how <laughs> we're looking at markets at the moment. Um, and I guess finally, the, the, the kind of final you know p- um, piece of the jigsaw for, for this week is um, some pretty big news out um, from um, Barclays Bank. Um, Barclays has made a, a bit of a boo-boo. So they announced on, on Monday um, that they're going to take a £450 million hit to their profits, um, basically as a result of overselling um, complex exchange-traded notes in 2019. Now, Laura, I don't know, you might not have come across overselling before. You might have heard of mis-selling, um, yeah. but, but this is overselling. So basically the way this works is the bank uh, in America kind of agrees with the US authorities how much of these kind of exchange traded notes they can sell each year. And Barclays was allotted a, an amount of uh, £21 billion. And it went over that allowance, not by kind of a little bit either. It went over that allowance by 15 billion um wow not pounds sorry dollars so obviously that's you know that's not a couple of kind of um um you know kind of exuberant salesmen maybe kind of (laughs) putting in a few extra hours at the end of the week so uh, you know the shares the shares actually fell quite significantly five percent on the news on monday and then they were also hit on tuesday uh because they fell another two percent because it was news that um a big investor we don't know who it is yet um offloaded 900 million um, uh, pounds of the shares um, the, the day after. So it's it's pretty significant, not just because the share price fall. They've also had to push back the share buyback they announced. The US is look, the US regulators looking into the matter now. So possibly there's a fine further down the road. And, you know, I guess bank investors were probably hoping that they put the, you know, days of big, big regulatory fines behind them. But, you know, this just shows that that risk is still there. So the other thing is that this overshoot is so big. You know, how was it allowed to happen? Um, you know, it hints that there might be some some hiccup in monitoring or compliance, um, which uh, which allowed it to happen. And, you know, when it comes to banking, that is uh, a worry uh, for in, in investors. You know, that also casts a shadow over the current um, chief executive, um, you know, who was group risk officer when that oversight uh, occurred. So there, you know, there's been a, obviously a big hit to profits, 450 million pounds. But also, there are still uh, a lot of troubling questions out there for Barclays to answer. And it's so, probably a good lesson for investors who are investing in, in individual stocks that you can do a lot of research on a company. You can be confident in their prospects going forward. But there still could be things that you don't know about, the regulator doesn't even know about, that could come and derail the share price at different points. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, like you say, the regulator doesn't know about it. And it appears that, you know, the people who should have known in Barclays didn't know about it either. Um, And I guess probably that risk is magnified when you've got a very big and complex organisation like a lot of these global banks are. 
Um, so while we're on banking, Laura, there's also been some big news that there's now a savings account out there that's um, actually offering what looks to be a fairly decent rate of interest. Do you want to do you want to fill us in on that? I know it's um it feels like a while since we've had one of these but obviously in a rising interest rate environment we'd hope to see a bit more competition in savings accounts but what we've got here is Chase Bank which is a US bank launching in the UK um and as part of that launch to create headlines and get customers it's offering a savings account that pays 1.5% interest which is a pretty good rate in comparison to what we've seen recently um Regular podcast listeners going way back might remember us talking about a similar thing with Marcus from Goldman Sachs, which was obviously a US firm coming to the UK market and wanting to get market share. And in doing so, they launched some really attractive savings rates. Um, With Marcus from Goldman Sachs, they're still offering kind of average-ish savings rates. They're definitely not the worst in the table, but they're not top of the table anymore. They've got to a point where they've got enough customers, um, so they don't need to be have those kind of headline-grabbing rates. Uh, But what we're seeing now is effectively the same thing playing out, but with Chase Bank joining. Um, So for anyone interested in the actual savings account, um, you have to open a current account with Chase, uh, but you don't have to switch your current account. um, And then that enables you to open the savings account. It's all done via an app. So it's only for those people that are happy to have app-only banking rather than more traditional banking. There's not a branch you can go into with this one to open it. Um, It has that in common with a lot of other banks then. Yeah, basically. (laughs) Most banks now (laughs) ditching the branches. (laughs) Um, And so in the interests of research, I decided to set one up yesterday to see how long it took. And it is a very easy, smooth process. I think one of the things that the kind of challenger banks, as they were called um, quite a few years ago, and these app-only banks have done, is really streamline the process. And it means that any new bank launching also has to have a pretty slick app process in terms of opening your account so you do the usual things of scanning your driving license or passport to open an account enter in some details and then I think the whole thing probably took me about five minutes to open an account Um, and in terms of how the savings rate stacks up the current uh, next top rate is one percent and that is only up to twenty five thousand pounds whereas the 1.5 percent from Chase Bank is up to I believe it's two hundred and fifty thousand pounds so if you think about that on if you had ten thousand pounds of savings sitting in cash then you'll make an extra 50 pounds a year Um, and obviously the more you have the more you have sitting in cash savings, the more money you're going to make. And considering it only takes about five minutes to open the account and probably then another five minutes to transfer your money in, um, that's a pretty good rate of return for your time. Yeah. However. Yeah, I mean, I guess guess the question would be is kind of how long long will they keep the rate there? Is there any indication of that or any sort of guarantee or can they just change it at any point? So they can change it at any point. And that's probably, I think there's probably two big caveats. That will be one is that you need to keep an eye on the rate. So we saw this with Marcus and actually um, the Marcus by Goldman Sachs account, that was pretty market leading for quite a long time, but it just all depends how many customers these banks want to get in. Mm. Obviously, if you're completely new to the market, you're starting from a base of zero. And if you want to build up a meaningful um, customer base here, then you'd imagine that that offer might go on for a while. So it really depends how popular it is in terms of how many customers um, open accounts with them, but also what the what the bank's target is for how many people they want to get on board. And effectively what happens is once they hit that limit of the number of customers they want or they can take on, um, then they'll start reducing that rate. Often they might reduce that rate for new customers and, and 
honor it for existing customers for a year, for example, or it might just be completely variable. So um, it's one that you've definitely got to keep your eye on and then switch the money away if the rate does drop dramatically or there's a better, other better buy out there. Um, I think the other caveat is not specific to Chase Bank, but just more about cash savings at the moment. So if we think uh, we're talking about how 1.5% interest is a good rate, which um, still feels slightly mad. But um, when we think about the fact that inflation is going to be, I mean, it's expected to be 7% next month and, and go even higher later this year. If you're, if you talk about inflation being at 7% and you're getting 1.5% on your cash, that's effectively locking in a 5.5% loss in real terms. Um, so what we're saying is, it's a great rate for a cash easy access account where you've got no penalties of taking money out whenever you want to um but you're still locking in a loss and so you only really want to have money in cash that you know you definitely need access to or that you know that you don't want to take any risk with otherwise you should be looking at other places where you could get potentially higher return and so this week we saw the return of a well-known fund manager mark barnett so many people might remember him as neil woodford's former protege which is probably something he's trying to shed now but um he left funhouse invesco last year after 24 years but lathy's now reappeared yeah that's that's right yeah you say many people remember him as as neil woodford's uh, former protege but i don't think i've read an article about him that doesn't mention that exact phrase so <laughs> It is a moniker that he'd like to shed and probably would have liked to shed for quite a long time, even before the Woodford debacle, to be honest with you, as it's uh, no fund manager wants to be known as a kind of apprentice to someone else. But yeah, so he's um, he's joined a new um, um, fund management um, uh, group, which um, he joined last year, Telworth, uh, and they have now launched his new fund, which is the uh, Telworth UK income and, and growth fund which is going to be a, a uk equity income fund looking to provide a monthly income to investors sitting in the uk equity income sector so um you know it's 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 an interesting one i guess because of you know mark barnett's exit from um, invesco you know he left invesco under a, a cloud of very significant underperformance um in a lot of the funds that he was running a lot of the high profile funds that, that he was running and investment trusts um, as well. Uh, and so I guess this is kind of, you know, him coming back to the market and 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 I guess asking for a second chance, really. Um, so, you know, investors will will have to decide, of course, whether whether to give him that. I think, you know, looking back at his at his track record, um, you know, until, you know, probably until sort of 20 sort of 14 2015 it was it was looking you know pretty good you know um you know he was he was obviously kind of handed the reins to you know around 25 billion pounds of funds that neil woodford uh, was managing so kind of invesco wouldn't have done that if they didn't have a lot of confidence in him um and i think after that um you know he probably was um you know beset by a kind of fairly unique it can't be fairly unique. It was a unique set of circumstances, which which really hampered his his ability to, to deliver performance. So I guess one was Brexit. Um, there was also, and you know, this has turned around a little bit, but you know, it's 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 still certainly you know, if you look kind of look back at the last five five to kind of seven years, then there's been a long term slump in the kind of contrarian value approach to investing, which is the way Mark Barnett looks at things. And there was also the Woodford debacle itself, which actually had serious knock-on implications for, for for Barnett's funds because Barnett inherited them from from Neil Woodford. They had a you know a fair amount of unquoted stocks in them, 
um, you know, which ultimately had to be had to be sold off. And they had a lot of you know similar holdings because they invested in a, fa- a fairly similar way. And obviously, there was that contagion contagion fear. You know, kind of also hit um, Mark Mark Barnett's funds. So, you know, I, I don't I don't think fund managers, you know, you can make excuses for fund managers performance fund managers live and die by performance i'm sure mark barnett isn't going around saying all of these things but you can you can you can basically see that you know kind of he was dealt a pretty bad hand um and actually if you look at you know the longest um track record that he has which is on the what what used to be called the perpetual income and growth trust which he which he ran from 1999 until he left in two in 2020 um, he actually outperformed the market by about a hundred percent, and that's that's including the bad bit at the end. So, you know, it's a twenty-year period. You know, he's done a good job on that. So that maybe suggests that you know he is a fairly skillful manager who, who kind of maybe you know found himself at, you know at the end of his time at Vesco just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, you know, it's it's very hard to have second chances in fund management because um, you know I think one once sort of investors have been. You know, let down by man, active manager, um, it's kind of very hard for them, I think, psychologically to go back to them. But I guess that's the challenge for Talworth. And, you know, perhaps if he put stitches a, a, a strong bit of performance together to start with, then, you know, maybe maybe, maybe they will, um, um, you know, actually kind of um, pr- prove to be a successful fund launch. Let, let, let's hope so anyway, because, you know, like I say, he was beset by a, a fairly kind of nasty um, set of headwinds uh, at his time in Invesco. And is the is the new fund mirroring essentially what he was doing before? Same style of investing, same type of investments. Um, uh, is there still is there going to be any unquoted in there, which was obviously a large part of the Woodford downfall last time? Yeah, a good question. Um, I think largely it is it is a similarish in terms of its investment for philosophy, but but quite right. Yes, there are um, specifically going to be no unquoted companies within this portfolio. Um, and also, um, you know, a limit of 20% on the amount that the Mark Barnett can invest in smaller listed companies as well. So that's obviously, they, you know, Telworth have made that very clear from the start to obviously, um, you know, kind of preempt any any sort of, um, you know, any sort of criticism on, on that front. And, and I guess as well, you know, he's not going to be starting off running £25 billion worth of money at this fund. It's going to be grow very slowly. So actually, that's a lot easier um, to do um, because, you know, you you can get into and out of stocks a, a, a lot easier. But overall, yes, it's going to be in the UK equity angle for fund. It's going to be kind of value based on um, hopefully providing good dividends to investors and, and a growing income stream as well. We've actually got an interview with one of Mark Barnett's colleagues at Telworth in a couple of weeks' time. So Dan's going to be chatting to co-founder Paul Marriage about how he finds the best small companies to invest in. Yeah, so uh, last week on the podcast, we brought you all the updates on what was going on in the spring statement just after it happened. But um, Laura and I have been wading through um, some of the kind of tax figures to look kind of at the impact of, of tax changes over the next few years. Have, have you recovered yet, Laura? I'm not sure I have. It was like death by spreadsheets last week. Um, yeah, and. I'm- I yeah. don't know if it's slightly dented my love of spreadsheets, but I'm ho- I hope that's only temporary. That will never happen. That will never happen. Yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> anyway, we kind of run the numbers and, you know, that, you know, I guess bottom line is, you know, the kind of from the spring statement, the kind of chancellor's message certainly was, you know, that there's some tax cuts coming along. But actually the numbers we pulled out were quite alarming, weren't they? 
Really were. So I think what's important to bear in mind is obviously um, last week the Chancellor announced some tax cuts in the form of the changes to the national insurance threshold and um, and potentially reducing the rate of basic rate income tax. And, and if you've got no idea what we're talking about, you can go back and listen to last um, last week's podcast where we talked through all of the changes on the spring statement. Um, but what's crucial to remember is those are tax cuts on top of rather chunky tax raises that he announced last year. So there's some really great figures from the OBR, which is an independent budget watchdog, which does lots of number crunching around some of the statements that the government makes. And they've said for every £4 that Rishi Sunak took off us last year in tax changes, um, the changes that he announced last week only give you £1 of those back. So it's important to remember that while lots of headlines were full of tax cuts and how much more we're going to make from that. We're still worse off than when he started tinkering with the system uh, in March last year. And we've worked out exactly how much worse off. Um, so we can spread this misery, Laith. I don't know why <laughs> we... we're going to do. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Do you want to start off then? Because I'll, I'll do the middle one, then you can do two of them. Okay. So if we look at someone who's on a £25,000 salary right now, and we assume that their salary... Um, increases uh, by kind of the average amount each year of wages rising, the combined impact of the changes to national insurance, so that increased rate of national insurance that Rishi Sunak announced last year, and the freezing of the income tax thresholds, uh, which is effectively where the amount that you can earn within each tax bracket doesn't get increased by inflation each year. The combined impact of those over the next five years means that someone on £25,000 today will pay almost £2,000 extra in tax over those five years. Yeah, okay. So that's someone kind of £25,000 a year. So they're probably one of the, the bigger beneficiaries from the increase in the national insurance threshold rising someone a bit further up the income scale at fifty thousand pounds the combined effect of um you know the tax changes um you know we've seen over the last over the last two years comes in at almost nine thousand pounds worse off so that's pretty hefty and that's you know over the next over the next five years going to be paying nine thousand pounds more in tax and then if we go up another income level so we look at someone earning eighty thousand pounds now they're going to see almost £10,000 extra in tax. And I think what that highlights is that the biggest burden proportionate to income is in that middle segment. Um, So actually those people on the higher salary, so that £80,000 example, actually benefit quite a lot from the national insurance changes um, for lots of technical reasons that I won't go into, but we have written articles on if you want to um, get more information on that. so it's the, it's kind of the story of the squeezed middle again. So those people on around that £50,000 salary, people in that middler income bracket are going to see the biggest burden proportionate to their income. Yeah. And I can just say something else that I kind of, the kind of shocked me actually when I saw it in numbers is actually this, this is not to do with the spring statement. This is just to do with how much tax we will pay, which is that someone on £50,000 annual salary over the next five years is probably going to pay um around sort of fifty thousand pounds in tax so you know what you think of your your salary you're going to pay that in income tax over the next five years and on top of that you're going to pay national insurance as well uh which would be another kind of around thirty thousand pounds so that really kind of also brought home to me kind of how i guess how you know kind of how much tax we pay without probably even thinking about it 
Well, it's really depressing news, isn't it? I feel like we should have some sort of happy jingle now to really brighten people up. Well, actually, Laura, we've got uh, something even better than that, I think, because Tax Your End is obviously approaching. We've already done a, a nicer special and quizzed an accountant about all your tax questions. So do go back and uh, listen to those episodes if you missed them. But now we have a Lifetime ISA special. So Laura and Tom are going to answer all your queries about the Lifetime ISA. So firstly, Tom, I think a lot of people are confused about what a Lifetime ISA is actually used for. So Mm. can you answer that? Yeah, sure. So I think confusion is quite understandable because the, the Lifetime ISA has a dual purpose. So saving for a first home and saving for retirement as well. So if you have one of those two goals and a LISA could be a good option for you because it combines an upfront bonus with tax-free withdrawals in certain circumstances as well. So in terms of how it works, so you need to be aged 18 to 39 to open a lifetime ISA. Once you've opened it, you can keep paying in until your 50th birthday and then you'll keep receiving a government bonus on the first £4,000 a year that you pay in. So that government bonus is worth 25%. So every year you could receive a government bonus worth up to £1,000. So 25% of £4,000. Withdrawals are tax-free if you use the money to buy your first home, provided it's worth £450,000 or less, or at the age of 60. So that's where the dual purpose thing comes in. So it's either age 60, so when you might be thinking about moving towards retirement, or buying a first home worth £450,000 or less. Or the third circumstance when you can access your money tax-free is if you become terminally ill. But if you withdraw the money in any other circumstances, then you will be hit with a government-imposed early exit charge. And I think that takes us neatly on to this question. So I think I want to open a lifetime ISA, but I don't understand the exit charge. So Laura, can you explain how that exit charge works? Yeah, it's a little bit tricky. Um, and it's, I think, uh, quite understandable that lots of people don't understand it because other ISAs don't really have an exit charge. Um, so this is essentially where the government was trying to recoup any of the government bonus that it had paid you if you decided that you wanted to withdraw the money for anything other than those um, things that you mentioned there, Tom, so buying a first property or at the age of 60. Um what it means is actually you end up losing a bit of the money that you initially saved or invested. So, for example, if you paid in £4,000 in one year and then the government topped that up to £1,000 um, and then you decided that you wanted to take all of that £5,000 out, what would happen is you would have to give up 25% of that Um in order to take it out, uh, 25% of £5,000 is obviously £1,250. So it means you're losing your £1,000 government bonus, but also £250 of your own money. Um, so it means that it's not an easily accessible account if you just want to be able to kind of pay in money and then take it out a bit if you need that money. It's not an ideal account for that because you end up losing some of your initial money um, by doing that. It's a good It's good to have that function there if you did in an emergency need to access that money, but you had intended it to be for your first property or longer term savings. Um, At least you can get the money back, but you just need to be aware that um, it's not an account where you can just be paying money in and taking it out every month. Yeah, that's a good explanation, actually, because it's, it's an important distinction to make, isn't it? That you've got the the 25% bonus on the money that you pay in and a 25% early withdrawal charge. But actually, those two things 
aren't the same because the 25% early withdrawal charges on the entire amount, you can end up, depending on your circumstances, you might end up getting back less than you put in. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's tackle some questions about the first time buyer part of the lifetime ISA first. So people that are using it to get on the property ladder. So one person here asks, can I buy a property with my boyfriend and get a joint lifetime ISA with him? So uh, a joint lifetime ISA doesn't exist. So if you if you and your partner, so a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whoever it might be, um, wants to take out life, lifetime ISAs, then you could you'd each need to take one out individually. Um, if you're a first time buyer making a purchase with someone who's owned a home before, then you can still open a lifetime ISA and use it towards a home purchase together but the part a partner who's previously owned a property can't open one if you're both first-time buyers buying a property together costing four hundred fifty thousand pounds or less then you could both open a lifetime isa and save into your individual lifetime isa so effectively doubling your bonus but that wouldn't make a difference to the £450,000 property limit. So just because there's two of you paying into a lifetime ISA and buying a property, it doesn't mean that you'd be able to pay towards a property worth £900,000. It'd have to still be £450,000 between the two of you. So that may seem a little bit unfair, but that's just the way the product works, unfortunately. So we've got another question here, um, asks, uh, I know the lifetime ISA has a limit on the property value, so that's the amount of value I just mentioned there, of £450,000, but what happens if I go over that limit? Yeah, so this is um, another tricky one. So uh, obviously in certain areas of the country and certain buyers, this property limit will seem like a massive amount and they won't come anywhere near it. But obviously in some more expensive cities, in London, in the southeast, for example, um, £450,000, while a lot of money, um, might not be enough for some buyers Mm. out there. Um, So... It's quite a hard and fast rule. So if you ended up buying a property over that £450,000, you wouldn't be able to use your lifetime ISA as your deposit money and still get the government bonus on it. Um, So even if you go £1 over that £450,000 limit, um, you wouldn't be able to use it. And so then presumably you would be relying on the money that you'd saved into your lifetime ISA um, for your deposit rather than just miraculously having another pot of money sitting around that was equal to the deposit amount. Um, And so what you would have to do is make a withdrawal, pay that 25% exit charge that we talked about earlier, um, and take your money out that way. It means that you would lose the government bonus top up. And in the same way that we explained earlier, you might lose some of your initial savings. um, And you'll also be left with a shortfall. So for example, if you had £20,000 saved into your lifetime ISA, £4,000 of that would be the government bonus. So if you then bought a property over that um, valuation limit and had to withdraw the money, you would lose that £4,000 government bonus, but you would also lose a bit more money on top with the exit charge. So you're then going to have to scramble around to fight to make up that shortfall and to find that shortfall of money. So it's something that people really need to be aware of when they're first opening the account and saving for their deposit, but also when they're coming to buy. It could be very easy to get caught in a bit of a bidding war with a property that was initially under £450,000, creep slightly over that limit, and not really think anything of it but actually that could have quite a big financial repercussion for you 
Um, so let's move on to the using it, people that are using it for their pension or to save for their retirement. So someone's emailed in saying that they have a SIP already, a self-invested personal pension, and they have a lifetime ISA, but they've just gone freelance. So they're no longer getting any um, employer contributions mm. into their pension. So they want to know whether it's better to put the money into the SIP or into their lifetime ISA. And this might matter. They are a basic rate taxpayer at the moment, but their earnings could fluctuate and they could fall into a higher rate bracket at some point. Yeah, that's that's an, it's an interesting one. And there's there's about four or five million um, self-employed people in the in the UK at the moment who might be asking themselves this this very question. So probably worth emphasising the point that you made there at the top that um, if you're in a workplace pension, so that doesn't cover the person who's asked the question here, um, but if you're in a workplace pension and you get a matched contribution as well as upfront tax relief, then that's almost certainly from a, a tax perspective going to be the, the place that gives you the biggest biggest bang for your, your retirement saving. But because not only do you, do you get the tax relief, but you get 100% bonus effectively through the matched contribution where that matched contribution applies. If you look outside of the workplace um, or for retirement savings over and above those that get an employer match, um, for those who qualify for the lifetime ISA, so those aged 18 to 39, it's much less clear cut and the lifetime ISA can represent a quite an interesting alternative to a traditional pension. So if you're a basic rate taxpayer, then the tax relief you'd get on the first £4,000 that you pay into a pension is exactly the same as the 25% bonus that you get on the lifetime ISA. But the the key difference is that the lifetime ISA is 100% tax-free from age 60, whereas the pension will be able available from age 55 and only 25% of it will be tax-free. So the remaining 75% will be taxed in the same way as income. Um, worth noting that the point at which you can access your pension is due to increase to age 57 in 2028. So from a purely tax perspective, you, for, for, for a basic rate taxpayer, you've got the combination of the same upfront bonus and the ability to withdraw all of your money tax-free from age 60 versus having to pay income tax on three quarters of the money if you put the money into a pension. Now, clearly in a pension, if you manage your withdrawals effectively, then you could potentially pay no income tax on those withdrawals, but it'll be more difficult to do and it won't, you won't have the same guarantee of being able to do that as you can do with lifetime ISAs. Um, lifetime ISAs, as you mentioned earlier, can also be accessed in an emergency in other circumstances, albeit with an early withdrawal charge applying. So for basic rate taxpayers, certainly an attractive alternative that should be considered outside the workplace. When you look at higher rate taxpayers and additional rate taxpayers, I think the, the pendulum fairly clearly swings back in favour of pensions because not only do you get that upfront bonus of basic rate tax relief but you can claim back an extra 20% tax relief from HMRC in the in the case of higher rate taxpayers or an extra 25% in the case of additional rate taxpayers so that extra upfront money is likely to mean that that pensions will give from a tax perspective again will give you give you more for your money than you'd get for from a from a lifetime ISA um the one other thing that people may want to consider when deciding whether to put their money in a a pension or a lifetime ISA is the tax treatment on death. So I won't won't go into too much detail on this, but the, the, the main point being that money held in ISAs, including lifetime ISAs, will usually form part of your estate when 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 you do die and and therefore will be counted towards your inheritance tax bill. Whereas for for pensions that usually won't be the case. And in fact pensions can, if you die before age 75, can be t- passed on free of tax altogether. So that's just another thing 
that could be considered when you're weighing up the two different products, but lots and lots of things to to think about there. And it's so, not really one clear answer, is there? And I think that's what makes the product a little bit tricky. It's not like, oh, you fall into this camp so clearly yeah. um, this product would be right for you. It requires people to kind of make a bit of a judgment call on what they prefer, doesn't it? Yeah, I think I think it's a it's a good thing that there's you know any extra product being available that gives you another route is is a good thing, but it does also add to the complexity of the choices, and it means that you've got to do do your own research and think about how these things apply best to you. I think you can get a bit tangled up in it, but fundamentally, it's a good thing there's an extra product there. It just means you've got to think about how it applies to you and what and whether whether or not it it will it will be suitable for you based on based on your circumstances so so yeah no no easy choices to be made here but lots of options at the same time and someone here has said that they're about to open a lifetime ISA to use for a first home but they don't know whether to get a cash or a stocks and shares option so so Laura what are the things that they should be thinking about here yeah, so we've not really touched on this, but um, you can get a lifetime ISA account with um, cash providers, so where it just sits in cash and you get a certain interest rate, or you can choose to invest it. Um, generally, our rule of thumb previously has been five years is the um, you'd want to be putting your money away for five years or more if you were mm. going to invest it, because that means you can ride out some of the ups and downs of the investment market um, and that's kind of always been the rule of thumb if you want if you know that you're going to buy a property in the next five years you're probably better sticking to cash because that's a bit safer however at the moment what we've got is um we've seen some interest rate rises but generally we've got very low interest rates and we've got high inflation so that Mm. means anyone leaving their money in cash is being eaten away in in real terms and particularly when you think about how much house prices have risen by it's certainly not keeping pace with Um, rising house prices so I think there's an argument that people maybe need to reevaluate that five-year rule think about their own risk tolerance and it's another one where there's no right or wrong answer but it might be that some people think okay well the cash market is just not a great place to be right now so I might take a bit more risk and invest a bit more money even if I don't have kind of 10 years or um, maybe even five years until you buy a property um, you can um, you know take a bit of a mixed approach potentially uh, that gets a little bit more tricky but um, I think it's there's no one right answer and you just need to think about how much risk you're willing to take how you'd feel if you invested that money and and it fell in value a bit and whether you would panic and whether you've invested before, there's lots of other kind of questions, but it's definitely one worth thinking about and and thinking about in light of the fact that we've got high inflation and, and still fairly low interest rates. Yeah, that's a real challenge, isn't it? Because yeah, you talked about the interest rates that are available at the moment, and you you know you, you're not you're not really going to get more than one percent from a from a, certainly from an easy access cash account. I think nowadays, and when you're talking about inflation running at eight, nine, maybe even double digit figures, you're you're, you're potentially locking in a a real a, a real terms loss on your money of eight percent nine percent by by keeping it in cash. But as you say, equally if you're if you're investing money in stocks and shares, even if it's in a, a a balanced fund or you know something that's pretty low risk, there's still the possibility that you'll you'll get back less than you put in originally. So so no easy answers there, I don't think. Um, and finally, Laura, I think it might be worth highlighting some of the areas that could catch people out with with the lifetime ISA. So do you, do you just want to set out some of the some of the things that can be a bit tricky with regards to this product? 
Yeah, definitely. So I think a few things that um, people might not be aware of. So we've talked about the fact that you can pay £4,000 into your lifetime ISA every year. That actually counts as part of your overall £20,000 ISA allowance. Mm. Um, So if you paid in the full £4,000 into your lifetime ISA, you would only be able to pay £16,000 into other ISAs. Obviously, for lots of people, they're not going to have £20,000 to put away. But for those people that do have more money, um, that's just worth bearing in mind. And if you don't use that allowance each year, um, then you lose it. There's no ability to kind of carry forward any unused allowance from previous years. Um, One that I think catches some people out is that you must have had the lifetime ISA open for at least 12 months before you use it to buy a first property. So you couldn't open one, pay in your £4,000, get your government top up, and then a couple of months later, buy your first property. Um, It's some of the, I've never fully understood why, but I think it's some of the technical reasons behind it. And another one is that you have to pay in money into your lifetime ISA in the same tax year that you open it. Otherwise, it will be automatically closed by your provider. So, for example, if you've opened a lifetime ISA account um, since April the 6th last year, so the current tax year as we're recording this at the end of March, um, then you would need to make sure that you put money in it, even if it's just a pound um, in it in the same tax year, so before the 5th of April this year, in order to, for that account to stay open. Otherwise, um, the government rules dictate that your provider will have to close that account and then you'll have to go through the process of opening it again next year and paying your money next year. Nothing's nothing's ever easy, is it? There's always there's always some tricky bits that you've got to get your get your head around, even when there are there are extra options made available and lots of bonuses up front as well. There's things that investors need to need to think about and keep their eye on, otherwise it could end up could end up costing them. Yeah. But I wanted to end on a great fact I found out this week, Tom. Are you ready for this? Um, Wait there, wait there. I'm ready. Ah, Nice. Right. The highest value lifetime ISA that we have on AJ Bell U Invest is worth £215,000. What? And that is based... So bearing in mind, lifetime ISAs have only been around for five years. Mm. But um, that is only based on £12,000 of contributions by the individual. Plus the government will then have topped that up by another £3,000. So a £15,000 initial investment combined has generated £215,000. So that's good inspiration Is that your your lifetime ISA, Laura? Oh, my God, I wish. (laughs) I wish. I want to go... A lot of it is driven by buying... Tesla stock in the early days and it's gone up. I do not have the stomach to have gone on the wild ride that Tesla's gone on and not have sold, but I would quite like to get back in the time machine now and go back and do exactly what this investor's done. Yeah, that's not bad, is it? What, 10, 20 20 times, 20-fold increase in the value of of their money, something like that, 10 to 20 times? Yeah, not bad, not bad at all. So we've all been focused on rising energy costs and understandably we've been looking at the impact that it's had on our energy bills, but it's also had a dramatic impact on energy companies. So since last summer, 29 energy suppliers have gone out of business or gone into special administration because the price cap made it impossible for them to cope with soaring energy prices. And now obviously we've got even more potential disruption on the horizon as we look to cut or further reduce the use of Russia's energy supplies. So Dan spoke to Rohan Reddy, who's a director of research at ETF provider Global X, about all things energy. So the world has seen soaring energy prices uh, for quite some time now. And we've now got a sort of a new twist to the story as the West is looking to cut or 
greatly reduce the, the, the use of Russia's energy supplies. So joining me on the podcast to talk about all things energy is Rohan Reddy, Director of Research at ETF Provider Global X. Rohan, thanks very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Dan. So let's start with the impact of the war in Ukraine. So there's definitely a sense that countries in the Western world are sort of thinking about where they're going to get future supplies of energy. So do you think that because people are sort of having to look away from Russia, that this will see a rush of activity in the oil and gas sector with lots of money going into sort of drilling wells and also more money going into renewable energy as well? Yes, I think a country uh, like the U.S., for example, is very well positioned uh, for this environment just because of uh, the relations that they have with Western Europe and also the amount of natural resources that they have. But more broadly, um, other countries with broader energy sources are going to just generally look more attractive, whether that's on the traditional oil and gas side or renewable side, um, because as we've seen with geopolitical tensions in uh, Kazakhstan recently, and of course the Russia-Ukraine war, countries that are more unstable uh, make their energy sources a lot less reliable uh, for some of these countries to uh, sort of plan out for 10, 20, 30 years out from now. So I think Western Europe in particular, they've already been moving towards uh, a renewable agenda. The question is how efficiently can they move into that renewable uh, energy source? Because Right now, uh, renewables just on their own can't make up all of the power supply needs that uh, the EU needs. But at the same time, uh, they can explore other more traditional options, such as you know oil and gas coming from other OPEC countries or from countries like the US. So we think it's going to be a combination of both. Yeah. So, um, coal, nuclear power are also solutions. But I would get the impression that few countries would want to rely on coal for sort of the long term, given they've probably all got environmental goals to reduce um, carbon emissions. Where do we stand on nuclear developments? Do you think that we're likely to see approval for more nuclear power plants because countries are having to rethink their sort of future energy supplies and, and security? Yes, and I would say nuclear power is probably the best uh, positioned energy source of maybe any energy source out there. And part of the reason is, even though it does require a bit of a long-term investment, once you have the technology and the infrastructure in place, these are power plants that can very cleanly uh, power of your country's energy needs uh, without fossil fuel emissions or anything along those lines for 20 40, even in some cases, like 80 years, like we've seen uh, for some new permits. So when you look at it from both the economic side, where the costs start to really lower over uh, an extended period compared to other energy sources, and the fact that it has no greenhouse uh, gas emissions when it's in operation, it really does become a lot more attractive of an energy source. And we're already seeing there's a lot of uh, big power and population centers, such as Asia, uh, countries like China and India, they've really been out front in trying to build more of these nuclear power plants. And so they're leading uh, the charge on the nuclear side. But we're also seeing, you know, other countries, whether it's in uh, Germany or even Belgium, most recently, they've been phasing out uh, some of their, you know, nuclear uh, phase out uh, previously uh, phased agendas that they have. So you know, we're seeing countries both on uh, the side of they've really adopted nuclear energy to those that 
were previously against it, but are now reassessing their agenda and are maybe like thinking about not phasing these energy sources out because a lot of times once you have the technology and the infrastructure in place, both the cost and also uh, the reliability of uh, you know this energy source does make nuclear power a lot more attractive compared to others. Yeah, because I, I know a lot of people sort of will appreciate it is a clean source of energy, nuclear, but um, there's been a sort of lot of opposition from sort of an ESG perspective, people worried um, about the safety of it, you know, if that nuclear waste was mismanaged, you know, deadly consequences there. But so I, I get the impression there would still be a lot of sort of opposition from the public towards building of nuclear plants or uh, could that be the sort of the big stumbling block in terms of um, seeing lots more big developments in the, particularly in the, in the, the sort of the west of the world in the coming years? Well, ultimately, people just don't want nuclear power plants in their backyards. That's what it comes down to, because they don't want, you know, whether it's the nuclear waste side uh, being relatively close to them or something that could impact their community. What we have seen that's been a little bit more effective is in more remote areas or either smaller uh, nuclear power plants that are being built where it doesn't have that same nuclear waste or any kind of perception of risk out there to the broader community, those have been a little bit more well received. So I think, you know, the hangover from Fukushima and Chernobyl, and obviously some of the issues we're seeing in uh, Ukraine right now with Russia shelling a couple of those nuclear power plants. Again, these are just lingering issues that I think people are seeing that are high profile. But at the end of the day, a lot of the technology is still in place today that was not there even 10, 20, 30 years ago that are making nuclear power plants a lot more safe and reliable than they ever have been. So even though some uh, within you know, certain countries, especially those that have been very opposed to nuclear energy may not want it right now, a lot of it, I think, is just more on the high profile nature of a couple of the uh, issues that have happened in the past. But once you get the community's acceptance and they realize that both the costs are lower and also it doesn't have greenhouse gas emissions and it's reliable, it's kind of like it hits all three of the marks uh, relative to other you know, renewables or uh, traditional fossil fuels that really can achieve that. Yeah. So uranium prices hit 10-year high since Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, is that down to expectations there's going to be this big increase in demand as countries are sort of reshape their energy plans? Or is that down to sort of fears that actually supplies of uranium might be disrupted in the short term? Uh, both. So on the supply side, um, Russia directly accounts for about 6% of uh, global uranium supply. So it might not seem like a ton, but it's definitely enough to jolt a market that's uh, been fairly underpriced uh, in recent years. So the market was almost looking for a reason to kind of bounce prices up after a lingering period of, you know, $25, $30 uranium prices. And now we're around in like $50, $60 range. So a lot of times uh, this is just, I think, a bounce back that was almost needed to revalue the sector. At the same time, there are some other more indirect uh, risks that are attributable to Russia. So for example, uh, Kazakhstan is the largest producer of uranium um, in the world, 
and uh, their state-owned entity, Kazatomprom, is a huge producer of uranium as well. So the fact that uh, Russia and uh, Kazakhstan have had such close relations and also the protests and the geopolitical issues directly that happened in Kazakhstan uh, about a month or two ago, those are still lingering factors that I think are uh, putting the market's expectations of supply out of those countries a little bit more um, at risk than maybe you would expect. So some of it is just because of geopolitical relations out of countries that have historically had good relations with Russia. But on the supply side, I mean, on the demand side, uh, we are also seeing a lot more uh, strong demand coming out of the fact that, as we just discussed, like uh, a lot of energy policies are being reassessed, whether it's on uh, you know, Western Europe thinking about moving away from just a full renewable kind of agenda and more towards whether it's something along the lines of uh, nuclear energy or even relying a little bit more on Western uh, oil and gas. So we're seeing a change in energy policy. And then also long term, there's just been a lot more public um, like support that we've seen from big countries such as China and India uh, and others that have really been driving the sector upwards. So it's a combination of both um, supply and demand that are moving prices up. But I would also uh, emphasize that, you know, if you look at a price of uranium going back 10, 15 years, during the boom uh, that we saw back in 2007, 2008, uh, prices did hit around the $140 uh, mark, and then they really fell off a cliff after Fukushima into like the $20 uh, to $30 range. So a lot of this is just a normalization in prices too. Yeah. So if so, if in a, someone wants to sort of invest in this sort of the, the shift in the energy space, um, I guess they could be looking at uranium producers or, or companies that might build sort of the nuclear power plants or even sort of oil service companies. I mean, what, what, what's, what's sort of been catching your eye in terms of sort of um, perhaps moving markets already in this sort of space? Uh, yeah, I think right now what we're seeing is just the fact that, you know, nuclear has been very widely adopted, uh, mostly over the last few years. But the fact that we're seeing a lot more policies come out into place, that has actually been driving a lot of the uh, momentum upwards within the space. Because previously, you know, when you look at some of the oil and gas companies out there, I mean, they've been penalized, not just because of this long term shift away from oil and gas, but also uh, capital allocation policies and like the uh, amount of expenses that they need to really get their operations off the ground and make a profit. That's been a bit challenging. So I think if you're an investor looking on how to play this, if you are looking short term, oil and gas companies certainly look attractive. I think prices are more likely than not to spike up or at least remain elevated uh, just because of the uh, inflation numbers that we're seeing and also uh, the Russia supply chain issue that's coming up. But long term for an investor, if I were to pick a commodity that I think could really benefit from this energy transition over the next few decades, uh, uranium would certainly be, I think, her top pick in that space. Well, Rohan Reddy from Global X, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having us, Dan. That's everything for today. Thanks a lot for joining us. If there's anything you want us to cover or any questions you want answered, then please email podcast at ajbell.co.uk. And we will see you next week. Bye for now. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change. 
and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.